You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. On what was, in all likelihood, a gray and cool September day in the year of 1560, a handful of respectable ordinary men filed into Cumnor Place in Berkshire County. Once there, they would have witnessed the unmoving, well-dressed body of an affluent young woman, sprawled awkwardly at the bottom of a pair of stairs, dead. Her neck would have been twisted, grotesquely, obviously broken, but her stylish French hood lay undisturbed, perched atop her head. As more men arrived, they examined the scene, interviewed the servants who had found her, and questioned the women who lived in other apartments within the castle. Later, when all 15 of them had arrived, they would have witnessed the coroner's examination of her corpse. She would have been laid out respectfully, undressed down to her underclothes, presumably a gruesome task when rigor mortis froze her limbs as they had been at the moment of death. All 15 men stood and watched as the coroner examined the body, paying special attention to her neck, where her spine had been broken, and her head, which displayed two considerable wounds. The coroner would have used a measuring rod to ascertain the depth of each head wound, which he measured to be a, quote, quarter thumb and two thumbs deep. We don't know how they felt about this spectacle. Most had likely served before on juries for the coroner's inquest. Most of the time, inquest jurors knew their subjects well, having interacted with them in their community and being privy to their pasts, their hopes, and their dreams. In the 1560s, coroners typically chose jurors who were familiar with the decedent rather than those who knew nothing of their lives. The idea was that the coroner could learn much from men who had intimate knowledge of the decedent's affairs. In this particular case, few of these men were likely to know this woman well. The dead woman had been Norfolk-born and had for a decade maintained no household of her own. She had lived at Cumnor Place for less than a year, inhabiting second-floor apartments spanning the castle's western end. They had other reasons, though, to feel uneasy as they examined her wounds. This was no ordinary woman. 
they must have felt the pressure of their duty keenly as the inquiry began. The jury foreman, Richard Smith, frantically penned a note to the decedent's husband, who had received news of his wife's death at Windsor Castle and had subsequently retreated to Kew. Smith assured the woman's husband that this jury of discreet and respectable men were doing their best to ascertain her manner of death, but their initial opinion was that it was a, quote, very misfortune. Today, as part of our death series, we're digging into a particular death, one that scandalized the Elizabethan court, provided fodder for decades of court intrigue and propaganda by Catholic exiles, and launched a literary genre of embellished folklore embraced by many, Jacobean players and novelist Walter Scott among them. That's right, Tudor Files rejoice. These 15 luckless men had been summoned by the Berkshire coroner to investigate the suspicious death of Lady Amy Dudley, nay, Robsart, the wife of Robert Dudley, the childhood friend, purported soulmate, and undisputed court favorite of Queen Elizabeth I. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Little Amy Robsart grew up in Norfolk, England in Stanfield Hall, a medieval manor that her mother had inherited from her late first husband, Roger Appleyard. Stanfield Hall would go on to be the site of an infamous Victorian-era double murder, but that's kind of a different story. Probably one I want to talk about Probably at a different time. should do on another episode. Yeah, but I just think it's interesting, the connection. Um, her father, Sir John Robsart, was Lord of the Manor of Ciderstone, also in Norfolk. As a member of the Norfolk gentry, Sir John served as the sheriff of Norfolk at various points in his career. The Robsart household was devoutly Protestant, and like many Protestant households in Edward VI, England, they valued highly educated daughters. Amy was exceptionally well-educated. Historians believe that Amy met her future husband, Robert Dudley, in the aftermath of Kett's Rebellion. Kett's Rebellion was a 1549 upraising of resentful farmers in response to the illegal enclosures of common lands by greedy landlords. After the suppression of the revolt at Mousehold Heath, Amy's father, as sheriff, was visited by John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, and his teen son, Robert Dudley. We think this is when Amy and Robert first met. They were married less than a year later. Both were only 17. Contemporaries suspected that the two had fallen in love and perhaps even rushed into matrimony so they could indulge in sexual relations without guilt. William Cecil, future advisor to Elizabeth I, attended the wedding in early June of 1550. He was serving as a minor advisor to the Lord Protector Edward Seymour and was in the process of ingratiating himself with Warwick, Robert's father. But Cecil did not approve of the marriage, scornfully calling it a carnal match. The king, Edward VI, also attended the wedding along with his sister, Elizabeth, the future queen, who had been a childhood friend of Robert's. Historians now think that even if the two teens were in love, the marriage served Warwick's purposes, cementing a closer relationship with the Norfolk notables for whom he sought an alliance. In any case, the young Dudley couple settled for a short time on the Norfolk estate where Robert Dudley served as Justice of the Peace and a minor member of Parliament. 
Robert preferred the life of a courtier anyway, so he was often at court, away from Amy. In 1553, King Edward VI died, and Robert was swept up in his father's plan to prevent the throne from going to the Catholic Mary Tudor, installing the Protestant Lady Jane as queen. Of course, he married the new Queen Jane to his youngest son, Guilford, thereby making his own son the King Consort. So it's like, wow, what a great plan. He found a way to be the father of a king. <laughs> um, after only nine days, Queen Jane was deposed and the throne was given to the rightful heir, according to Henry VIII's will, the Catholic Mary Tudor. Robert, his father, and brothers were charged as traitors and sentenced to death. Robert's father and brothers were eventually executed as traitors, but thanks to his mother's friendship with Mary I's new husband, the Spanish King Philip, Robert's life was spared. Robert was attainted and confined to the tower for several months. His imprisonment coincided with the imprisonment of Elizabeth Tudor, the Queen's younger sister, for her suspected participation in Wyatt's rebellion. They may have deepened their friendship at this time. During this time, we know that Amy Dudley visited her husband regularly and that the Queen provided Amy with her clothing allowance, Queen Mary being, mm -hmm. right? Um, An attainer is a legal corruption of blood, resulting from being convicted of a capital crime. It strips hereditary elites of their property, their titles, and their right to pass either onto their heirs. So they were not exactly destitute, but Amy would have had to stay with family or friends, as they would have had no estate of their own until some of their possessions were restored to them in 1557. Even though Robert was pardoned, he and his family were only welcomed to court when Mary's husband, the Spanish King Philip II, was in residence. During Mary I's second parliament, the Dudley attainer was lifted, restoring their noble blood. Isn't that interesting? I actually didn't know that. I've heard that they that you know that someone had been attainted or that there was an attainder issued for a certain family or whatever. It but literally just like strips you. Strips you. I mean, I kind of thought it had to do with that, but attributes or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Basically, just makes you like a nobody. You're a, a normal person. person. You're a normal person. <laughs> You're a normal. <laughs> You're ordinary. <laughs> Um, Robert and Amy had been married for eight years and were still in their 20s. By this time, Amy had inherited her father's estate. Her father had died in 1554 and her mother in 1557. But her father's manor, Ciderstone, was uninhabitable, so the couple continued to reside with friends. That's something interesting that I have, um, that I've learned a lot about when I, when I researched Tudor England is that it's so much constant work to keep up these old manor oh, houses sure. that were like medieval. Yeah. So like half of them at any given time, even when they're owned by super wealthy people, Could are not. Yeah, yeah, like they're not in they're they're uninhabitable. Yeah. Well, especially when they're moving around like right. every season. Yeah. So then it's just sitting there, getting snowed and rained on, and whatever. Exactly. Nobody's living in it. So, right. Yeah. It's it's just I just never I don't know, I never thought of it. But it it just fascinates me that like. They would move so often because, like, literally, like, this place is starting to smell bad. Mm -hmm. Like, we need yeah. to move to right. our next house so that this one can be, like, Right. Like, out. there's a giant pile of yeah. underneath <laughs> the privy house, and it just smells like crap here. Yeah. We have to leave. Yeah, I know. I am fascinated by smells. So am I. Yes. No, I think that's, I think it's super interesting. Yes. Okay, so back to the story. Um, though there's no evidence that the couple was unhappy, Amy and Robert were rarely together. 
Robert spent the second half of 1557 in France on a military expedition on behalf of King Consort Philip, right? He's the one who kind of got him uh, pardoned. Mm -hmm. The couple were looking for a Norfolk estate to purchase so they could settle down, but they'd not yet found one in 1558 when everything changed for the young couple. Queen Mary died, and Elizabeth Tudor ascended to the throne. On the same day, she was proclaimed queen. Elizabeth named Robert Dudley her master of the horse. He was actually there with her at Hatfield, which is where she was living, when the messengers came and said, the queen is dead, uh, God save the queen, and that's and so they transfer the seal over to Elizabeth. And he's right there. And he was right there, and she was like, you're master of my horse, (laughs) right away. This position required excellent horsemanship, a skill Robert Dudley was known for, but it also required that he be in constant attendance to the queen. This is where most people believe their romantic relationship began. It's unclear if their relationship was sexual, though many suspected that it was. At the very least, their affair was romantic, even if it was chaste. The queen's infatuation with her Robin was apparent to all. Their relationship was especially important to English politics because Elizabeth was under tremendous pressure to make an advantageous diplomatic marriage. Her advisors and courtiers worried that she would marry Robert Dudley instead and destroy England's standing in Europe. Now, a few monarchs had married subjects in the past, most notably Edward IV of York, who married Elizabeth Woodville. His choice was scandalous, but critics were silenced quickly by Woodville's diplomatic skill and remarkable fertility. She had, what, how many children? Four children? Five? In in the first four years, but she ended up having like 12. Okay. Very fertile. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Though many courtiers accused her of witchcraft... Maybe because she was so fertile? And did, her, did they think she bewitched him? Her mother was French, and they had some kind of weird French... Um, they were known for being, like, healers, but, like, in a uh, witchy kind of way. Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. I like her. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so they accused her of witchcraft uh, and resented her for favoring her kinsmen, i.e. the French. Yeah? Uh, no, just the... Really oh, just, just the her Woodvilles. family. Yeah. Okay. Just, okay. I mean, basically any kinsman, she would have Edward you know, um, promote them in the court or whatever. And people okay. were like, who's this bitch thinks she is? Because gotcha. she was just a commoner. Gotcha. But she had lots of children, and Edward was like, she's hot. I want her, her to be mine. He didn't love her enough to not cheat on her, but, you know. So Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor, it was believed did not have this luxury that Edward IV had, right? right. Um, her queenship was already on shaky ground. Catholics suggested she was a bastard child owing to Anne Boleyn's poor reputation and did not belong to Henry VIII at all. Although they look really similar, so I feel like, duh. Red hair, red hair. Yeah, I mean, come on. (laughs) So, moreover, she was a woman, right? Yeah. There were few examples of female ruling monarchs, and all of them suggested to the English that women rulers were problematic. Mary I, Elizabeth's elder sister, had purportedly imposed her Catholicism on unwilling subjects and burned over 300 Protestant dissenters at the stake. She married the King of Spain, which had elicited widespread disapproval from the largely anti-Spanish kingdom, and to top it all off, she'd failed to bear an heir. Even more embarrassingly, Mary had suffered from several phantom pregnancies that had made the English monarchy the laughingstock of Europe. Before Mary, the only other example was Empress Matilda, whose cousin Stephen usurped her throne in 1135, launching the civil war known as the Anarchy. 
So they don't have any really good examples right, of great ruling queens. Gotcha. Great queen consorts, yeah. Like, that's fine. But ruling queens, no. Not so much. So it is understandable, though frighteningly sexist, that Elizabeth's advisors, her court, and her subjects were nervous about her infatuation with Dudley. Perhaps most importantly for our purposes here, Elizabeth's love interest was married. The rumor mill churned away in Elizabeth I's court. The queen was recorded as saying that she would indeed marry Robert Dudley, quote, in case his wife should die. Whoops, don't say that. (laughs) The Spanish ambassador, Don Gomez Suarez de Figueroa, wrote in his correspondence that Lord Robert has come into so much favor that he does whatever he likes with affairs, and it is even said that Her Majesty visits him in his chamber day and night. People talk so freely that they go so far as to say that his wife has a malady in her breasts, and the queen is only waiting for her to die to marry Lord Robert. Mm, Gossip, gossip. Mm. These Spanish ambassadors are gossipy motherfuckers you'll see (laughs) still there's no evidence that the dudley marriage was in trouble robert visited amy dudley at throcking in march 1559 and amy came to london to see him two months later those who saw her in london in may 1559 said she looked well on June 7th, 1559, Robert Dudley was made a King's Guard and granted the Lieutenancy of Windsor Castle. Windsor was only 30 miles from Cumnor Place, where Amy went to stay in December 1559. Extant correspondence suggests that Robert arranged for his wife to move to Cumnor so that she'd be closer to Windsor Castle. Robert Dudley inquired about buying land nearby, in Warwickshire, so it was likely that he expected to set up an estate near Windsor for him and his wife. So, yeah, so th- there was not, I mean, it looks like he was planning on, like, staying with his wife and buying an estate for her, and, like, he was making plans, right? In the meantime, however, Amy Dudley stayed at Cumnor Place, which was owned by William Owen, and rented to Anthony Forster, who resided there with his family. We should take a moment uh, to clarify that Cumnor was part of the land holdings of the dissolved Abingdon Abbey. So, if you'll remember your Tudor history, Henry VIII, when he created the Church of England. He dissolved all of the Roman Catholic church holdings and and Mm -hmm. took them for the crown, right? So Abingdon Abbey has been dissolved, and part of the land holdings was this kind of Cumnor area. Which you can, so it explains why Catholics are, like, so pissed. Like, not only because of religion, because they've literally lost all their wealth. Correct. (laughs) Right. And some of them are just exiles in France, like, living in it. Yeah, so they're pissed, right? So uh, Cumnor, the Cumnor area, it's set on the border of what's now Oxford and Berkshire counties. So at different times in history, Cumnor belonged to different counties. So whether we say Oxford or Berkshire, we're talking about the same place. It was Berkshire during Amy's lifetime, but now it's part of Oxford. And obviously that becomes hairy, right? So I just wanted to explain if we make a slip and say Oxford or Berkshire, you know, that's, that's why. So anyway, um, since the castle contained several living spaces, Forster sublet parts of the house out to acquaintances. Amy and her entourage resided there, but so did William Owens' mother, Mrs. Anne Owen, and a middle-aged widow named Mrs. Elizabeth Odingsells and their servants, right? These are not just individual people. It's people with retinues of servants. These are fancy people. With their entourage. Correct. 
Amy Dudley lived in the most grandly appointed apartments in Cumnor and maintained a household of 10 servants. Her quarters were sumptuously furnished with a large picture window overlooking the terraced garden, a large pond, and 25-acre deer park. Her apartments had their own private entrance. At the time, wives were not entitled to spend their own inheritances. So remember our coverture episode, all of her property was forfeited to her husband since women were not entitled to own any property. Uh, Robert insisted that she use her parents' inheritance to live in style as the wife of a favored courtier should. He also lavished her with decadent gifts like spices, luxurious textiles, and valuable coins. At the same time, he failed to visit her throughout all of 1560, making her trip to London their last visit together. He planned to come stay during the Royal Summer Progress in 1560, but it was canceled that year, and Robert claimed it was difficult for him to get away from court life. And maybe we should explain that a progress is like when they actually travel from castle to castle. Yeah, and Elizabeth goes and stays with, well, the queen or king goes and stays with um, notables. And it's like a big honor to have her stay with them. And it's sort of like a way of, you know, um, being seen by the people and making good relations with the nobles and things like that. Yeah. Um, And And it's like the whole castle comes. Yeah, the entire thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I should say... I wanted to point out that the reason that I explained that he gave her gifts and he was kind of generous and all this stuff is important because um, later on we start to see this idea that she was a neglected and sort of imprisoned woman, Mm. like that she wasn't allowed to leave the house, she wasn't allowed to have nice things, and like that he was like, you know, a monster, like keeping her away. And that's really not – she was free to come and go – she had every luxury she asked for and then some and he was very thoughtful and sweet and sent her things that he knew she would like and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. so I'm just trying to um dispel some Lay of the, the groundwork. Yeah, some yeah. of those rumors don't you can see we'll see where they come from. But okay. court life was probably quite busy, especially for Robert, who was, according to other courtiers, always in the Queen's demand. Courtiers gossiped about the Queen's jealous nature. One court chronicler wrote that Elizabeth forbade Robert from visiting his wife, and if he did, he, quote, was commanded to say that he did nothing with her when he came to her as seldom as he did, end quote. So she's, like, not letting him see his wife or have sex with his wife, Mm -hmm. or that's what people are saying, right? Mm -hmm. The English nobility and functionaries in the Spanish court resented Robert Dudley for preventing the Queen's timely marriage. So... Unsurprisingly, his enemies suspected that he intended to marry the queen once he was free to do so. In March 1560, another Spanish ambassador, Alvaro de la Cuadra, wrote, quote, Lord Robert told somebody that if he lived another year, he will be in a very different position from now. They say he thinks of divorcing his wife, end quote. These were, however, only rumors, as far as we can tell. There's no evidence that Robert initiated a divorce or even inquired about doing so. But he was an ambitious man. It did not take much to believe that he was considering splitting up with his wife. That's not the craziest thing, right? We've already seen, this court has already witnessed Henry VIII doing this many times, right? Right. Um, Even if he loved Amy, he was made for court life. And even if he did not love the queen, which... He may have loved her. He certainly loved the idea of being king consort. 
This sticky situation meant that the events of September the 8th, 1560, would fall under scrutiny and remain one of England's oldest and most bitterly contested mysteries to this day, 460 years later. On the morning of September 8th, 1560, a Sunday, according to the Julian calendar in use at the time, Amy Dudley woke up and suggested to her servants that they attend Abington Market for the day. She was quite insistent on having her apartments to herself that day. Several of her servants corroborated that, quote, she would not that day suffer one of her own sort to tarry at home, and was so earnest to have them gone to the fair that with any of her own sort that made reason of tarrying at home, she was very angry. So basically, she's trying to kick them out of the house is what she's saying, right? Mm -hmm. um, she even tried to get Miss, Mrs. Odingsales to go as well, but she refused, saying that it was unbecoming of a gentlewoman to attend the market on the Sabbath. Though this made Amy angry, she acknowledged Mrs. Odingsell's right to make her own decisions. Amy would have taken her morning meal in her rooms, and perhaps she may have gone to service at Cumner's Parish Church, St. Michael's. Though no one is sure what exactly happened or when exactly it happened, Amy died that morning. Her death was not discovered until sometime in the afternoon when her servants returned from their day out at Abington Market. They found her body splayed at the bottom of the stairs leading up to her apartments. Her household immediately sprang into action. One message was sent to Berkshire's coroner, and another, carried personally by Amy's servant, Mr. Bowles, was sent to her husband, Robert Dudley, who was at Windsor with the Queen. By chance, Mr. Bowles passed Robert Dudley's close associate, Thomas Blount, on the road. Bowles gave Blount the news and continued on his way to Windsor to inform Robert. Blount went about whatever business he had planned that day before he received a note from Robert, perhaps the next day. So Robert had received the news of Amy's death, and he wanted Blount, who had just left him right before he received this news, right, um, to ensure that the coroner carried out a robust investigation. Robert's letter read, quote, The greatness and suddenness of misfortune so perplexes me, how this evil doth light upon me, considering what the malicious world will brew it as I can take no rest, end quote. So he's like, this is literally the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> um, Dudley also asked that Blount ensure that the coroner chose, quote, the discreetest and most substantial men, end quote, to serve on the inquest jury. When Blount arrived on September the 10th, he found the coroner had already summoned the jurors, and many of them were at Cumner. Blount assured Dudley that they all appeared to be honest and upstanding men. We have found some evidence that Dudley suspected Antony Forster of having done some harm to Amy. Blount made a point of telling Dudley that some of the jurors disliked Forrester, which he thought to be good, since this made it less likely that they would quote, conceal any fault, if any be. Blount performed a cursory investigation of his own, desperate to ascertain or confirm the jury's verdict. The jury remained tight-lipped. According to Blount, quote, they can be very secret, and yet do I hear a whispering that they can find no presumptions of evil, end quote. Blount went on to admit that the jury seemed relieved that they had uncovered no evidence of foul play, and Blount himself admitted that he'd had doubts, but that they were quieted by the jury's hints. The coroner's jury of 15 was impaneled in its entirety by September 11th or around that date. The inquest took several days. It is unclear how many days were dedicated to investigation. 
Before the jury disbanded, however, they were informed of dates in which they'd be expected to appear before the Queen's justices and the Court of Assizes quarter sessions. Amy Dudley was buried by September the 22nd, so the investigation probably wrapped up before then. It was not until the next year, however, that the coroner read his report, which included the jury's verdict of misadventure, on Amy's death. For centuries, the coroner's report was lost to us. It was discovered in a manuscript collection in 2008 and digitized by the National Archives in 2010. That's crazy. Yeah, so a lot of the people who we'll be talking about who, like, have opinions on what happened to her have never read the coroner's report. Right. Um, Because it's a brand new find. So it's written in Latin, but it's been translated by the National Archives. So here are, this isn't the whole thing, but here are the highlights. And I'm telling you now, this is 16th century Latin legalese. (laughs) So bear with me. Quote, the jurors say under oath that the aforesaid Lady Amy on 8 September in the aforesaid second year of the reign of the said Lady Queen, being alone in a certain chamber within the home of a certain Antony Forster Esquire in the aforesaid Cumner and intending to descend the aforesaid chamber by way of certain steps, in English called stairs, it actually says that, Mm -hmm. of the aforesaid chamber there and then accidentally fell precipitously down the aforesaid steps to the very bottom of the same steps, through which the same Lady Amy there and then sustained not only two injuries to her head, in English called dense. Oh, no. (laughs) One One of which was a quarter of an inch deep and the other two inches deep. But truly also, by reason of the accidental injury or of that fall and of Lady Amy's own body weight falling down the aforesaid stairs, the same Lady Amy there and then broke her own neck, on account of which certain fracture of the neck, the same Lady Amy there and then died instantly. And the aforesaid Lady Amy was found there and then without any other mark or wound on her body. And thus the jurors say on their oath that the aforesaid Lady Amy in the manner and form aforesaid by misfortune came to her death and not otherwise and they are able to agree at present Yikes. end quote so many aforesaids and sames like oh no she fell down she started falling down one set of stairs and then landed at the bottom of another <laughs> set as you do like what are you talking about <laughs> so, so anyway <laughs> so yeah translated from this 16th century legalese right The jury found that the most likely cause of death was misadventure or accident from a fall down the stairs, which broke Amy's neck. Now, before this coroner's report was found in 2008, the injuries to Amy's head had been lost to history. The only information we had about her death was that her neck had been broken and that she'd been found at the bottom of the stairs. This will be important later when I explain how Dudley's enemies were so convincing in their accusations of murder. So keep in mind that this verdict was not made public until six or seven months after Amy's death. But in the meantime, the rumor mill was running full time, right? So it took six or seven months for the jury to actually announce their verdict even after they'd reached it. But in the meantime, everyone's deciding what's going on, right? Something that piqued the interest of Dudley's enemies was the widely reported fact that the vicar who performed her funeral services mistakenly referred to Amy as having been murdered rather than killed by a fall. So also very quickly, if you're an obsessive tutor file, I don't know how many we have of those who listen, but there's some debate about this. Some sources say that he said murdered or would have been murdered with a... TH, um, instead of slain, 
And at the time, slain could be used to mean died rather than, like, mm-hmm. slayed, like, actually murdered, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, other sources say that he accidentally said slain instead of died. But, so I don't know which one it is. Right. But whatever it is, whatever word he used, um, you know, it's... Proved fodder for the rumor mills. Exactly. There you go. Most of the mourners in attendance agreed that the vicar seemed very nervous. Most felt like his jittery disposition caused him to make those mistakes and that they meant nothing. But this was also only the beginning of the circus that ensued after Amy's death. Ironically, it was Robert Dudley's ambition to become king consort that made others suspect him of murder. But it was this suspicion of murder that made it impossible for him to ever be a suitable candidate for Elizabeth I's husband. So what does this mean? How did Amy die? Did Robert Dudley's ambitions have anything to do with Amy's death? One thing most people can agree on is that there are four options. Murder, suicide, illness, or accidental fall. How do you? How does an illness cause your neck to break? Oh, you'll see. <laughs> okay, thank I'm you. about to explain. Well, not right this second, but soon. Before Amy's death, rumors had circulated that Robert and Elizabeth were conspiring to poison Amy Dudley so they could be together. In a March 1560 letter to the Spanish court, um, right, so this is six months before Amy died. Ambassador de Quadra wrote that he suspected Lord Robert was, quote, keeping his enemies and the country engaged with words until this wicked deed of killing his wife is consummated, end quote. Suspicions of a murder conspiracy revolved around Robert's unstoppable ambition and the Queen's inability to accept that he was unavailable. Robert likely did have designs on becoming the king consort, but he need not kill his wife in order to make that happen. Divorce was an option, one that Dudley purportedly mentioned to people at court. But once again, we don't have any proof of that. Both of his parents and both of Amy's parents were dead, so they could have no objection, um, you know, if the marriage was dissolved, right? And Amy certainly didn't have any say because she's a lady. women never do. But um, so that was an option. And I also want to point out the first part of the statement that I read above about if, you know, if Robert had lived another year, he's going to be in a really different position. Um, To me, that's key. I don't think Robert's relationship with Amy was the biggest hurdle between him and the throne. The larger impediment was surely the block of anti-Dudley courtiers, diplomats, and advisors in the Star Chamber, right? Like all of these very important people who don't want Dudley around. His enemies were so close and so powerful that Dudley saw fit to preface his declaration about his relationship with Elizabeth, if I'm still alive this time next year, right? You know, why? Why wouldn't he be? He was 28 years old. So it's likely that Dudley knew this place of power uh, within the Queen's court was a tenuous one. Dudley's being a subject rather than royalty in his own right was already an impediment to a marriage with the Queen, Being a divorce subject would certainly aggravate matters, but not nearly as much as if he were a subject and a murderer or a subject that was suspected of murder, right? So much intrigue. (laughs) In fact, most contemporaries and historians agree that Amy's death was the absolute worst case scenario for Dudley's ambitions. The queen became uneasy with Robert upon hearing the news about Amy's death, suggesting that she may have suspected that Robert had something to do with it. 
Likewise, Robert became suspicious of his friend Antony Forster, half believing that Forster might have taken it upon himself to do something rash that would advance his patron's career. In fact, Robert's behavior after Amy's death indicate that he was desperate to clear his name and open to any and all avenues to do so. Before the coroner's report and jury's verdict was released in 1561, Dudley suggested that, quote, another substantial company of honest men, quote, end quote, should be summoned to collect more knowledge of truth. He nominated Amy's half-brothers, John Appleyard and Arthur Robsart, to take part in the second inquiry, but this inquiry never happened. Dudley showed all the signs of someone who was genuinely interested in uncovering the truth of Amy's death. His enemies saw his persistence as an attempt to interfere with the investigation. Their suspicions were reinforced by his refusal to attend Amy's funeral. From a historical perspective, however, all signs point to Dudley taking pains not to involve himself in the investigations in any way. He retired to Kew after receiving news of Amy's death and stayed away from Cumnor during the coroner's inquest. His refusal to attend her funeral can also be explained by the heightened environment of suspicion. All of Dudley's outgoing correspondence suggests that he was devastated by Amy's death, perplexed by its timing, and tortured by the rumors at court that he and the Queen were vicious murderers. Some contemporaries and some historians today believe that Amy may have killed herself. We have some evidence that Amy perceived that her marriage was crumbling. Most people suspect that Amy heard news of her husband's inappropriate relationship with the Queen. She was only 30 miles away. Amy and Robert sent correspondence back and forth quite often. Their messengers would have been well acquainted with the court gossip, which they likely shared with other servants in the Dudley retinue. It's unlikely that Amy was unaware of the dynamics in court. In fact, we have some evidence that Amy was upset shortly before her death. Robert Dudley's man, Thomas Blount, interviewed Amy's maid, Mrs. Picto. According to Blount, Mrs. Picto said of Amy, quote, She was a good and virtuous gentlewoman, and daily would pray upon her knees. And diverse times she saith that she hath heard her pray to God to deliver her from desperation. Mrs. Picto's response was designed to persuade Blount that Amy was religious and innocent of any intrigue that may have gotten her killed. But Blount took this to mean that Amy was behaving particularly melancholy before her death. When he suggested that Lady Dudley's death was perhaps a suicide, Mrs. Picto, Amy's intimate confidant, responded, No, Mr. Blount, do not judge so of my words. If you should so gather, I am sorry I said so much. So basically saying, no, that's not what I said, right? Mrs. Picto genuinely believed that Amy's death was an accident. The only bit of evidence that points towards suicide is the fact that Amy was so insistent that her household leave for the day. Her anger at the refusal of Mrs. Odingsills suggests that Amy wanted Cumnor Place to be as empty as possible. Her strange behavior does make suicide a possibility, but an impractical one. If the coroner is to be believed, Amy's cause of death was a broken neck. The, quote, pair of stairs that she was suspected to have fallen down contained few stairs. They were called a pair of stairs because they contained an initial flight of four steps, which gave way to a square landing and then another four steps. 
This is a total of eight stairs in a time where steps were wide with short risers. If Amy was intent on taking her own life, this does not seem the most likely place and efficient place to do so. (laughs) At the same time, when people are convinced they need to end their own lives, they could perhaps be so overwhelmed with the thought of release from this world that they aren't necessarily considering the possibility that their plan won't work. Yeah. So I get it. You could just be panic. It could have been a panic thing. I'm going to throw myself down these eight stairs. Right. Because I'm not thinking clearly. Yeah, but, like, it's, so it's not, like, it's not, it's not sufficient to just say, like, oh, well, obviously it's not suicide, because who would do that? But it's, yeah. like, well, also, like, she's also Somebody killing herself. Yeah, like so she's not in her right mind in the first place. Yeah, there's place. already something going on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, this could also be evidence against an accident theory. Robert's contemporary suspected murder, for the most part, because it seems so unlikely that a woman would fall down the stairs and land in such a way as to break her neck without disturbing her hood, right? This is eight stairs, right? So it's like, seems so hard to kill yourself on eight stairs. Um, They reasoned that her neck must have been broken first and that her fall was staged. It seemed impossible to most that a murderer would push her down the stairs knowing that she could possibly survive, Right. Okay, I, I get that. Um, but if you're murdering someone, then you're hardly being rational and reasonable anyway, right? And if it's in the heat of passion, then you're not, like, that's not even what you're thinking. You're just trying to hurt someone, right? Mm-hmm. So I haven't seen this particular theory anywhere, but this is, this is my personal theory. Um, since the coroner did not have the benefit of modern toxicology testing, I wonder if it's possible that Amy took something that might end her own life, a poison or overdose of some kind, um, and if she had, she may have tried to go down the stairs in her intoxicated state, perhaps in a panic. Um, scenes from suicide deaths tend to have evidence that the victim either regretted their decision or simply panicked and did kind of semi-irrational things in, during this process. Um, and this might explain why Amy had fallen, especially down such a flight of stairs, right? If she had taken something and was not, mm-hmm. um, did not have all of her faculties. Um, but it also explains uh, her melancholy, this kind of suicide idea, and it fits nicely with the situation at court, right? Because what a miserable life to have that your husband stays away all the time and is trying to marry the queen, right? Mm -hmm. So this circumstance could be modified slightly to work for murder as well. If Amy was dosed with something that might end her life, she might have descended down the stairs to get help when she realized she'd fallen ill and then, you know. So there's, I guess my point is there's, you know, there's like a million other options other than her. you're just adding to the whole fuel to to this. Other than her just being in her right mind and being like, I'm going to throw myself, you know, there's, there's other, there's many other options. Yes. Or maybe she, maybe she was just drunk. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. All right. A, a, a little tipple a little, midday. A little tipsy. <laughs> Unlike most of the murder theories out there, the poisoning theory is one that circulated at the time of Amy's death. If you'll remember back to our reference of the Spanish ambassadors who were writing about Dudley's marriage in 1559, it's important for us to point out that there were uh, three different ambassadors sent letters from the English court expressing concern for Amy Dudley. Two diplomats commented during her visit to court that she seemed to be suffering some kind of ailment that was impacting her ability to eat properly. Later that year, Ambassador de Quadra said that although she looked well, she was obviously, quote, taking good care as to not be poisoned. One court chronicler had written earlier in 1559 that Amy was so paranoid that she was going to be poisoned that William Hyde, landlord at Throcking, where she'd been staying, had asked her to leave. 
Her sudden departure from Throcking was, indeed, suspicious. She vacated the residence so quickly that she was forced to stay for two months at Compton Verney, the home of Sir Richard Verney, while she arranged for a more permanent residence. None of these poison-oriented explanations hold up for long, however. The coroner's jury would have looked for indications of overdose and poisoning. Um, They would have searched Amy's quarters, her food stores, and her servants. Moreover, when suspicions were aroused decades later, Robert's political enemies did all they could to prove that Robert had poisoned her or ordered someone to do so. All of the possibilities they uncovered, however, had been exposed as bogus claims. There is, of course, one other option that goes a long way in explaining Amy's behavior before death, the Queen's words to ambassadors, and the coroner's inquest verdict. This theory was established by a Scottish surgeon, and apparently Tudor filed because he was just a surgeon but decided to write about this, um, named Ian Aird. Remember, Aird would not have been privy to the newly discovered coroner's report, so as far as he knew, Amy had a broken neck and no other marks of violence. Aird published a paper in 1956 calling for the exhumation of Amy Dudley's body. He argued that Amy likely died from spontaneous spinal fracture, a common enough complication from metastatic breast cancer. Aird makes one really good point after referring to the breast malady recorded by the Spanish ambassador. Aird writes, quote, This is surely more than a remarkable coincidence. The only breast malady that would attract this kind of attention would be cancer. It would seem extraordinary that Robert Dudley and the Queen, lacking as they did the necessary pathological knowledge and understanding, should choose one disease out of thousands which, by its natural progression, could be responsible 17 months later for a broken neck without any evidence of gross external violence, end quote. It's kind of a good point. Like, the, what are the odds that they would mention that there was something wrong with her breast and then something happens to her that happens to people when they have breast cancer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suppose, yeah. Well, and it also explains Elizabeth's and Robert's morbid predictions of her imminent death. It also explains how such an unlikely accident could be rendered entirely likely. Aird also suggests that his thesis explains Amy's passionate sessions of prayer witnessed by Mrs. Picto, and perhaps even Robert's guilty avoidance of her company in the year preceding her death. Most notably, Aird claims that his thesis also accounts for Amy's irritable interactions with her servants and with Mrs. Odingsell's the morning of her death. The only thing is that now we know that Amy's body did exhibit signs of other violence, two injuries to her head that were just as consistent with an accidental fall down the stairs as they were with homicidal blunt force trauma. Does this change the compelling nature of AIDS theory? Not really, but it doesn't make it any more likely either. Yeah, I mean, I love that idea, but there's, you know, so there's, I have more reasons why I don't see this being the answer also. So I can't get over the lack of medical records pertaining to Amy's supposed cancer, right? And I don't agree with Aird that only cancer would elicit such attention from Elizabeth's court. So this relationship between Elizabeth and Robert was so important to courtiers' everyday lives that they would have pounced on any information they were able to get about Dudley's marriage to Amy. Amy may have mentioned to a maid or even to Robert that she suffered from any number of maladies of the breast, a cyst, mastitis, or even early signs of pregnancy, just anything. Anything about boobs being weird, right? (laughs) Um, 
Any detail about her boobs would have been welcome fodder for court gossip and could have easily been twisted to anyone's agenda. Right. The Dudleys were wealthy, fancy people. They, more than anyone else in Norfolk, could have procured a physician. Breast cancer was typically treated by physicians in this period. Some patients underwent crude surgeries to remove cancerous masses, without anesthesia, remember? But most of the time, physicians probably ordered palliative care for suffering patients. There is no record of any visits with a physician, trips to the apothecary, or arrangements for nursing for Amy Dudley. Aside from court rumor, there is not one shred of evidence that Amy was ill. Right. But I suppose, I mean, everybody's illness is different. And I think a lot of times now, a lot of the illness when you have cancer is from the cancer treatments and not right. not the cancer itself. Right. So, you know, maybe before chemotherapy and radiation and all that stuff, maybe you could appear to be more you know, to be healthy until the until very end. Yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah. Um, so I can tell, however, that Aird is my kind of people because he was eager to have Amy's remains <laughs> exhumed to test them for cancer or cancer-related bone decay, um, which is totally my jam. So as we've determined in prior episodes, I'm on board, dig them up, dig them all up, test all of them. I want to see it. So, no, but really, this... It would really be a fascinating exhumation, I think. Um, and I think maybe even warranted, uh, like, ethically disturbing her grave because, like, her case is kind of actually unsolved. So it's, like, giving her justice. You know, it's not, like, just digging them up to see what they look like or whatever. Yeah. Um, so Aird, he's committed to doing his due diligence, right, visited the parish church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford to inquire about finding her burial place. Contemporary accounts record her final resting place as somewhere on the eastern end of the church. In 1946, the church experienced a fire that damaged the chancel. The reconstruction efforts gave the church an opportunity to look for Amy's grave. They were disappointed to discover that the area that held Amy's grave had been filled and then dug over again in previous centuries. This process destroyed the older graves that lay beneath the top layer of soil. When they excavated the graves that had been interred after the fill and dig, they found the soil layers in disarray, with human bones crushed and scattered all throughout the soil. After hearing of this turn of events, Aird wrote, quote, There is thus no hope of recovering Amy Robesert's remains. Obviously, he was writing this before DNA and the mass fatality recovery techniques we have today. I find it hard to believe, you know, that it wouldn't be possible nowadays because he was writing this in the 1950s, okay? Um, I think he died in the 1960s. Aird did. So, you know, he he's thinking, well, all is lost. But, like, mm-hmm. really... You know, forensic anthropologists, like, you know, do stuff like this all the time, like finding mass graves and and finding which bones belong to whom and Mm -hmm. whatever. Like, that's normal now. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that that's true, that 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 it's, you know, totally um, out of the realm of possibility. yeah, Yeah, I don't think so. Throughout this episode, listeners familiar with the story will have noticed that we've reframed from including the lurid, sensational stories that make up the mythology of Amy's death. That was on purpose. So as historians, we love these stories, don't get me wrong, but we also try to be fair to the lived experience of people from the time. So we've tried to convey the story as people would have at the time experienced it. 
But in the decades after Amy's death, her demise was used by various political groups to attack Robert Dudley, who was, by 1564, created Earl of Leicester. Most of the published attacks in the 1560s bizarrely revolved around Sir Richard Varney, the man who shared his home with Amy for two months before she moved into Cumnor. So he's just kind of, you know, a bystander in this situation, mm-hmm. but he becomes the, the primary villain. So, so one such chronicle uh, was written in 1563 by Protestant activist John Hales. He regarded the Dudleys as avowed enemies, right? So he's not an unbiased person here. Hales presents all of these ideas, especially about Richard Varney, um, as rumors, right? So he says the rumors, but then he spreads them and is right. like, listen to all these rumors, right? So it's kind of plausible deniability. Um, so he says, quote, the Lord Robert's wife break her neck at Forster's house in Oxfordshire, her gentlewomen being gone forth to a fair. How be it, it was thought she was slain for sire Richard Varney was there that day and whilest the deed was doing was going over the fair and tarried there for his man, his manservant, right? Who at length came and he said, thou knave, why tarriest thou? He answered, should I come before I had gone? Hast thou done? Quoth Varney, yeah, quoth the man, I have it sure. So (laughs) many times before it was brooded by the Lord Robert, his men, that she was dead. This Varney and diverse his servants used before her death to wish her dead, which made the people to suspect the worst. So we will need a translation. (laughs) So basically, Varney and his servants tried to kill Amy while she stayed with them for those two months. Before they were able to succeed, she moved to Cumnor. So, Verney supposedly sent his servant to go kill Amy. After the deed was done, Verney's servant confirmed she was dead. Though this does not tell us about Amy's actual death, it does tell us what people were saying about it and how complex and winding these rumors had become. Amy's death again fed court intrigue in 1567. In the years after her death, Amy's half-brother, John Appleyard, had become convinced that Amy had been murdered, but he did not suspect Robert Dudley of having committed the crime. He actually contacted Dudley several times, asking that he initiate a new inquest. Appleyard regarded the jury's verdict as inconclusive, the one from 1561. Dudley purportedly told him that he was satisfied that the coroner and jury had done a thorough job the first time and that it was too painful and politically risky to open her case again. Now, this does sound a little fishy on Dudley's part, but his response is not totally unreasonable because this is Appleyard's side of the story and you'll soon see why he may not have been reliable. Yeah, I mean, it looks like, he, so Appleyard's saying, I'm trying to get him to get a new thing and or to open up a new investigation. And Dudley's like, no, let's not. Seems kind of shitty, but also, like, the first investigation, like, destroyed his life. So, yeah, let's, so like. Don't, no, do, yeah, don't open it up again and remind everybody. Right, like, I get that. So, in 1567, Appleyard was approached by representatives of the Duke of Norfolk and the Earl of Sussex and offered a bribe of 1,000 pounds, which is, an insane amount of money oh, yeah. at the time. I mean, like, rich people made, like, 50 pounds a year. So, oh, like, wow. I mean, we're talking, like, billions of dollars, like, a billion dollars or something. Um, if he accused Robert Dudley of murdering Amy. Appleyard refused to implicate Dudley because he believed him to be innocent. But he reported the bribery attempt to the authorities. 
When Robert Dudley, now the Earl of Leicester, heard this new plot, he summoned Appleyard and the two argued. The Queen's Privy Council was compelled to investigate this serious accusation. Appleyard was imprisoned in the Fleet, which is a debtor's prison, for a month while William Cecil and other members of the peerage interrogated him. They demanded that he declare in writing what caused him to implicate the Duke of Norfolk and the Earl of Sussex, right? So these are super, super powerful, important people, and he's basically saying that they're trying to take Robert Dudley out. Realizing how serious the Privy Council was taking these accusations, Appleyard retracted all of his claims about a bribery attempt and requested a copy of the coroner's report filed by the inquestory who investigated Amy's case. After studying the report, Appleyard told Dudley that he was now satisfied that his sister's death was nothing more than an accident. Hmm. So why did him and Dudley argue? Because he wouldn't... Yeah, just because he kept, like, bringing it up. Oh, okay. Um, And I think Dudley would have hoped that if he was bribed that he... Would have told them no, but then not said anything about it. Gotcha. Because now it's like a thing. Now it's a thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Amy's case continued to capture the English imagination. The most important publication that appeared in Dudley's lifetime was a satirical libel called Leicester's Commonwealth, which was written by Catholic exiles in France in 1584. In this work, an embellished or really fictionalized version of Amy's death appears to be based on the rumors recorded by Hales. In this version, Richard Verney goes to Cumnor Place himself and forces the servants to go to the market. He then breaks Amy's neck and poses her body at the foot of the stairs. In this version, the jury's verdict was murder, but the verdict was suppressed by Dudley, and Amy's body was buried surreptitiously on the grounds of Cumnor before being exhumed and reburied at St. Mary the Virgin. In an extra dramatic turn, Verney's servant is murdered in prison by Dudley's men, and Verney, on his deathbed, murmurs, quote, that all the devils in hell, end quote, tore him in pieces for what he'd done. Right. I, some of the quotes have to be really PC because if we read the whole thing, yeah, we, we would not understand it at all. Yeah. So, um... As is common in early modern Europe, Leicester's Commonwealth was not recognized for what it was, libel, for a long time. I couldn't find any authors who fully discredited it until the 1870s. So basically between the 1580s, when it first appeared, and the 1870s, so almost 300 years, uh, Amy's death became a favorite topic of English drama, art, and literature. And they're all going based off Leicester's Commonwealth, which is literally made up, right? right? As early as 1608, Jacobean players were performing a Yorkshire tragedy, which has a line about pushing your wife down the stairs as a convenient way to be rid of her. Quote, a politician did it, they say. The antiquarian Elias Ashmole, and he kind of owns the Ashmolean uh, Museum, reproduced the libel in his county history, Antiquities of Berkshire, um, which he compiled in the 1600s. Countless authors, playwrights, and poets read Ashmole's county history and then used the fictionalized story of Amy Robesert's death in their work. The embellished version really took off in the Romantic era. It had everything. Political intrigue, forbidden love, murder, mystery, history. The story appears in Chapter 5 of Sir Walter Scott's novel, Kenilworth, first published in 1821. Scott wrote in the figure of Varney, keeping alive that dramatic invention of John Hales. 
Scott's novel was wildly popular and was adapted into a play by Victor Hugo in 1828 and into an opera by Donizetti in 1829. Amy and Robert Dudley became the subject of romantic and neoclassical painters. The couple were painted by Richard Parks Bonington in 1828, by Henri Fradel in 1865, and by Edward Matthew Ward in 1866. These paintings typically depict the two as a loving couple. 21st century people may not uh, be automatically familiar with the story, so to those people, the paintings appear to depict an Elizabethan couple, or at least how Victorians imagined Elizabethan couples to look. But to people in the know, and many 19th century people would have been in the know, these paintings would be chilling because you're looking at a young, loving, carefree couple, and you know that before long, one of them will end up dead and the other one will have murdered her, or at least stand accused of her murder. Right. So you can see like how it would be super creepy without right. having to be creepy. Right. Many painters also painted Amy alone, so we have no authenticated portrait of Amy from her lifetime, but that did not stop European painters from imagining her. Um, Charles Robert Leslie painted her in 1833, Thomas Francis Dixie in 1895, and William Frederick Eames in 1870. Most of these imagined portraits show Amy as a conventionally attractive brunette, right, kind of whatever would have been attractive at the time, you know. Um, but some depict a plainer-looking woman, a little bit more, I don't know, Puritan-looking, I guess. Um, in 1877, William Frederick Eames painted Amy again, but as a corpse splayed at the bottom of a flight of stairs. She wears luxurious silken nightclothes, and her long hair is fanned out around her face. Two men, presumably her servants, are in the process of discovering her. Or have they just pushed her to her death? One can't be sure. Mm. In 1890, Edward Charles Barnes painted Amy appearing smitten as she beheld a portrait of her husband. To be sure, he meant to depict a naive woman in love with an ambitious man who would soon murder her to marry his queen. In 1910, William Quillard Orchardson depicted Amy Robsart wistfully descending a pair of stairs. To be honest, this is one of the most creepy because it looks so ordinary. It's of a blonde young woman in a stylish but sober outfit descending the first flight in a pair of stairs. The viewer is supposed to know, based on the robust embellished tradition of Amy's death, that this is the moment before she falls to her death. Isn't that creepy? It is. In the midst of this artistic interest in Amy's death, several antiquarians, who were not so much historians as collectors, wrote monographs about the topic. A flourish of publication followed James Anthony Froude's discovery and translation of Ambassador de Quadra's letters, which we mentioned and quoted from earlier. Um, and this, these were found around 1860. For example... In 1885, Norfolk antiquarian Walter Rye published his Murder of Amy Robsart, using Frode's work and Lester's Commonwealth as his main sources. There were 25 works written about Amy Robsart from 1800 to 1850, but between 1850 and 1900, there were 168. So this was big business. Right. So it's like it's become a ghost story in yeah. a way. Yeah, and I mean, I calculated these numbers myself. It took me a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did it based on, like, Library of Congress, like, things and 
um, world cat and whatever. So let's, I mean, I'm not going to say that they're one, that that's 100% accurate, but that it's close to that. So basically 25 works in the first 50 years, the second 50 years, 168. It's okay. obviously after 1860 Exploded. became like a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In 1870, however, historian and scholar George Adelard published a monograph about Amy and Robert Dudley that included primary sources and well-vetted evidence, which, for a Victorian historian, is a very rare. <laughs> and I don't mean to throw shade, but they, they, you know, their levels of media literacy were not what you would want, right? Adelard suggested that Amy's death was a suicide using euphemisms, right, as a Victorian gentleman would. Um, He doesn't actually say, hey, she killed herself, right? Adelard's publication reinvigorated scholarly interest in the affair. In the 1890s, the English Historical Review hosted a spate of contentious articles wherein scholars and amateurs debated the facts of the case. One of these scholars, James Gardner, came out against James Anthony Froude's use of Ambassador de Quadra's letters. He procured a copy of the letter and translated it from Spanish himself, noting any tricky areas and exposing Froude's use of the letter as erroneous. Froude argued that Elizabeth and Robert had prior knowledge of Amy's impending death. De Quadra wrote that Elizabeth had told him, Lord Robert's wife is dead or nearly so. So uh, Froude dated this letter to September 4th, four days before Amy died. So it's like, ooh, suspicious. But the original is dated September 11th, which was two days after news of Amy's death reached Robert at Windsor, but before her passing was announced to the public. Gardner also found several areas where Froude employed questionable translations to achieve his desired result. Froude had a deep disdain for Henry VIII that carried over to his daughter Elizabeth and her lover Dudley. He pretty obviously wanted to cast Robert in a bad light and expected that no one would take the time to verify his source material and his translations. But he was wrong. (laughs) After the intense criticisms of Froude, most accounts of Amy's death that purport to be scholarly do not use Lester's Commonwealth or John Hale's writing as reliable sources. This resulted in a turn towards Dudley's innocence and, by virtue of their relationship, the Queen's innocence. For example, in 1910, A.F. Pollard argued that it is paradoxical to conceive of Dudley's ambitions to marry the Queen as a motive, since, quote, that murder would make the marriage impossible. Still, there is something romantic about that paradox. Some recent historians have suggested that Amy killed herself knowing it would haunt her husband and keep him from marrying the Queen for the rest of his life. Others suggest that Amy's fall was accidental and that she inadvertently got her revenge on her unfaithful husband. It's just cool to think about, but probably... But no one knows! But nobody knows. Um, so I don't mean to suggest, or, or we don't mean to suggest, that historians have all agreed and that they've definitely kind of gotten it right. Um, so even today, academic historians, amateur historians, biographers, and historical fiction writers disagree about what actually happened to Amy on the morning of September 8th, 1560. Author Allison Weir suggests that William Cecil organized her murder in an attempt to disgrace Robert Dudley forever. 
George Bernard and Chris Skidmore are proponents of the Sir Richard Varney theory because his name appeared in two different sources closest to the time of her death, which is true, but also those sources were just based on rumor, so F that. Um, <laughs> historian Susan Doran favors the suicide theory, attributing Dudley's purported interference and refusal to attend Amy's funeral to the shame of suicide and Dudley's guilt for having driven her to despair, which to me makes a ton of sense. Um, most current historians have discounted the possibility that Robert Dudley or Queen Elizabeth orchestrated her death in subsequent cover-up. What do you think? What do you think? So if you have opinions on this, we'd love to hear about it in uh, our Dig History pod squad. Yeah, right? or just email. Yeah. I think that I... I think it was an accident. And I think that it was just the worst possible person for it to happen to at the worst possible, the worst time. possible time. Um, but I mean, accidents happen to people who suck and have enemies. So like, <laughs> you know, it's totally, I mean, it just, it happens. And there's actually been this, um, there's this huge digital project about accidents, um, accidental deaths in 16th century, uh, England. Mm-hmm. And it's this huge like statistical project. And they have found like how common it was for people to die of accidents, like at work or kids running into the fire or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was incredibly common, much more common than accidental death is today because of safety right. concerns, right? So, um, you know, and, and these would have been big giant stone steps and she would have been wearing a really long dress. And like, I just think... I think it is entirely possible. So going back to the wounds that were on her head, so they were the coroner was saying that that was that was um, in line with somebody who would have fallen down the stairs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so but, so but they it, were more like she hit her head. Yes, twice. but it also yeah they thought it was compatible with what would have happened to her head when she fell, mm-hmm. but they didn't say that it was incompatible with like blunt force trauma yeah. because you can't really they couldn't say for sure. Yeah. This reminds me of um, the staircase, the, the modern staircase murder. Have you heard of this? Mm-mm. Just gonna say that. I know, and I'm like so pumped because it's just the best. It's um, Michael Peterson. Is that his name? Michael Peterson. It's I always get mixed up because there's two different Petersons who killed their wives. Um, oh, so Scott Peterson was the one that killed his wife that the, was pregnant. Yeah. So it must be the other Peterson. Well, there's three. There's oh, there's more. There's, there's more. Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Um. Scott Peterson is the one that I, yeah, it's Michael Peterson. So, um, so there's the, the death of Kathleen Peterson. To me, it's kind of like the more like modern version of this. Um, and Kathleen was found at the bottom of stairs, but there was like all this blood and, um, she was found, her cause of death was actually, um, blood loss. So, she didn't have a skull fracture, but she had massive lacerations on her head, and she was found at the bottom of the stairs. He was actually convicted of her murder, and then his oh, was this, conviction was, was overthrown. Was yeah, it's called Staircase. Okay. Yeah, yeah so it this. kind of – but, like, watching that, um, I really don't think that Michael Peterson killed his wife. I really, really don't think he did. And not just based on his uh, personality or anything like that. I, I really think that, like – I don't know. Sarah and I have talked about this before. Like, you know, if you she she had drank a lot and she was taking I think she was taking painkillers or um or an anti-anxiety drug. I can't remember which. And she was also she also drank half a bottle of wine and she was like this tiny woman mm-hmm. and she was going up the stairs in her socks, whatever. Like 
I can imagine that. Like, I almost, like, kill myself. Yeah. Constantly <laughs> going I up and down my stairs. I have to make a thing to not walk on my stairs in my socks. Yeah. Like, really? And you have carpet on your stairs, yes, don't you? Yes, it's worse. I, yeah, I mean, I have, yeah. I remember my kids were sliding down here. <laughs> yeah. No, I know what you mean. I, I don't have carpet, and it's, um, it's just wood floor. And oh, we fall down my stairs every day. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. so many. The, the so. statistics on, like, the dangers of stairs are insane. Oh, God. So don't tell me that. So it makes perfect sense yeah. to me that someone who was tipsy on anxiety medication or whatever it was right and had been drinking yep would accidentally fall down the stairs like yeah that is a logical thing because i follow them yeah them it's sober well and her husband thing that makes that a little sketchy yeah is that his first wife also fell down the stairs. it wasn't his first wife it was the mother of the kids oh that's right of his friend's kid that's correct is the mother of his it was his friend's wife and his friend had died he adopted so it really wasn't his first wife. It was his friend, I guess, the first but one. But still gives you pause. Right. Well, she, it does totally give you pause. Yes. <laughs> but I still agree with you. But I still totally, I still see it. And she, yeah, she bled out and everyone was like, well, like, why didn't you hear her fall down the stairs? Blah, blah, blah. They have this giant house in like North Carolina or something. Yes. Or South Carolina. Where's North Carolina. And he was out by the pool. Yeah, he's out by the pool. They had mm-hmm. a water feature. That was like water feature. And it's like, that's why, because you're rich and you have a water feature. And he was sitting there, you know, finishing, um, he's smoking a cigar and finishing his wine or whatever. By the time he went inside, she had bled out. So. Good Lord. And like, I really do see like how that can happen. I'm not saying I know for sure that's what happened in his case or that's for sure what happened in Amy Dudley's case. But I think that accident actually in many ways makes the most sense because I think about this all the time. If I died of an accident, there'd be probably like five or 10 things in my life that would make people think it wasn't an accident. (laughs) You know, like a fight I had with a friend or like, um, you know, she and her podcast buddies were fighting over money or whatever. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Over the $7. Over the $7 we made in this podcast, you know, or whatever. Like there's always like, there's always stuff like motives for murder are just like normal everyday life, like shitty things. So, So, I don't know. I really do think that it was just an accident, and I wish that the cancer thing could be true because that would be so interesting to have found that out after all this time. Right. But I really don't think it's possible. People don't realize that, you know, fancy people in Elizabethan England used physicians, and those physicians kept records, and we have them. So, like, I just think yeah. we would know about that. If she had it, yeah. You would think. I mean, not all the records survived, but you would think – There'd be some There'd be something. more concrete evidence of her having exactly, yeah, cancer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the really cool thing about finding the coroner's report in 2010 is amazing. Well, how do we know that nobody had read it since the 1560s? Um, because like, everybody just it said lost? it wasn't available. So uh, from the 1580s in uh-huh. Leicester's Commonwealth onward, it was like, what happened to the coroner's report? Obviously, it's been suppressed by whoever. Like yeah. it's so nobody could find it since then yeah um and then it was found in probably the sc's court you know documents or whatever yeah. and now the um national archives has so it's just like digitized it mm-hmm. yeah. and it's this is the original so the, the one that they found mm-hmm. um which is just amazing so like yeah. all these people especially like people who wrote historical fictions in the early 2000s and 1990s mm-hmm. it's like oh damn like now they have to <laughs> they have to rewrite, rewrite everything <laughs> So it goes to show that we are, even though we're historians and we're looking at the past, we're constantly uncovering new things mm-hmm. that, that tell us more that we didn't know before, yep. which is super cool. 
visit us at digpodcast.org. Send us an email at hello at digpodcast.org. Check us out on Patreon. Check us out on Twitter, dig underscore history, and ask to join our Dig History Pod Squad on Facebook. We mostly share memes uh, and, I don't know, make fun of each other and make fun of history and just, it's it's not entirely serious. Thank you for mm-hmm. listening. Um, five-star reviews are always appreciated. Yes. Bye. Bye. 1960, a Sunday, a Sunday, they were in their that's, Sunday that's best. My, that's how my grandma says. <laughs> Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. The dead woman had been Norfolk Bone. Barn. <laughs> Norfolk Barn. Uh, okay, so back to the... I was, I'm crying from laughing, but... <laughs> Painster. Painters? <laughs> Painters! That's so cute! Dudley visited her... Uh, oh, I should say Amy. So, Dudley visited... Uh, okay. Most of the mourn... <clears throat> Good lord. <clears throat> the queen's infatuation... Whoa, buffalo! <laughs> and we're spectacle. With the Norfolk notable, with the Norfolk notables. Okay, that will be a weird edit. Cementing a closer relationship with the Norfolk. You can use a different word if you want. <laughs> I just can't say Norfolk. Her anger at the refusal of Mrs. Odingsale's Odings. She acknowledged Mrs. Odington's right to make her own decision. Odingsale's. Mrs. Odington sells right to make her own what? decisions. You just said Odington sells right. Odington's. I was going to ask if you had an opinion. Oh, I don't. Okay. I was watching a horse show. <laughs> <laughs> her answer is horses. Yes. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Um, so. <laughs> that was such a burn. Oh, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> That's really cool, but okay. This choice was scandalous, but critics were silenced quickly by Elizabeth's diplomatic skill and remarkable fertility and remarkable fertility what do you mean by that she had like four kids in like the first four years that they were together so people oh were like, good oh. lord okay sorry i was bouncing back and forth in time and i didn't remember i didn't realize you were talking about elizabeth woodville okay oh yeah sorry that okay let me read all that again then that makes more sense <laughs> you're like the virgin queen yeah i was like what the fuck do you mean by that <laughs>